We hear Jesus, but do we obey him? Let's pop the top on this. Cue the music. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the only one. Pick up your sword, gather your What's up, guys and gals? I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to another episode of that Philly Faith Podcast, where we talk the walk and walk it too. Kick us off, Chris. Well, you know, I was going to do a joke about unemployed people, but they don't work. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, yep. Yep. There you go. I dig it. <laughs> Bar set low. <laughs> <laughs> Only way we can go is up. So as you know, we always start off our episodes with an opening segment that we're now calling What's On Your Mind. We just talk about whatever's been pressed upon us throughout the week. So, what's on your mind, Chris? Well, you know, I mentioned this to you before we started. I'm going to have to start carrying a notepad with me because I think <laughs> so many random thoughts throughout the week. And I'm like, oh man, that'd be a really good open open comment con, you know, part or, you know, or I think a little thought and... And then by the time that I get here and I sit down and you ask me this question, I'm like, ah, nothing happened this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I will say something did stick out and it's kind of a continuation from our, our talk about uh, our talk last, our open mic last week, or open mic or what's on your mind second last from last week. And you said we were going to probably go over it in another, another episode, but it's kind of turning it over in my head. And your, your question was that, um, do you think that God's purpose for Goliath was to be slain by David? Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. So I, and I started thinking and reading and, you know, there's not a whole lot of the history of Goliath. Like we don't know a lot about him, mm-hmm. but I guess what it comes down to for me is I would hope that, you know, of course we can't understand the interest, the intricate web of our lives in the world that God weaves, you know, to, to think that we have any kind of fathom of what that looks like is folly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We have, I mean, absolutely no clue, but, um, I, I would like to believe that God did not create Goliath with the purpose of being slain by David, by, by just saying the only reason that like, like God's thought process would be I'm creating this being specifically to be killed right mm-hmm. i mean i know i mean we're all terminal right we all have an end date and god knows that end date but i can't help but think that there was many past goliath could have took to get to the point that he was but he was there on that date for for not for that reason but he was there on that date so god used that situation at that time right right so like in some alternate well, not alternate universe, in some alternate fashion, if Goliath hadn't been a part of that army and not been there that day, I can't help but assume that something else would have taken the place for David to make the showing that he did. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I'm 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 actually really glad you brought that back up because I, I don't think I expressed w- what my intent was in asking that. Right. Because I didn't necessarily mean did he create him to be killed by David. 
So, so I'm glad you brought that up to specify that because I don't, I don't think God does that. Right. I guess what I, what I meant was Goliath as he was at that point in time, mm-hmm. evil as he was, do you think that God set him apart in that moment? Yes. To be killed by yeah. David for, yeah. for the purpose of just David. This is, this is for David to do. This mm-hmm. is the work I'm going to give him to do because this will magnify him in the eyes of the people. Right. I guess that was that was my intent yeah. in asking the question. Yeah, and so in a roundabout way, that's pretty much exactly what it would have been my answer was. Right. Yeah. At first, I'm like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you know, God knows our end at the very beginning, but but then I also I also believe that we have many ends that we can arrive to. Uh, yes. And God knows them all mm-hmm. and has them all planned, but we kind of choose our own path, if you will. Right. In our, in our free, free thinking. So, I mean, you know, had Goliath been a repentive soul and knew God as David knew him, I don't think that, that he would have, first of all, I don't think he would have been there that day. You know what I mean? Yes. But then he would have had a different end and God would have found something or somebody else on that day at that time to use for David. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. When, when, when we're talking about how God views time and how God views what you, what you ref, referenced are the paths that we can take, mm-hmm. it's very complex. Yeah. And I think from our finite perspective, we view, we view that and we interpret that as predestination. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't believe in predestination at all. No. I, I believe predestination is our way of interpreting what he does from our very, very limited perspective. And I think what we're really seeing is what what you alluded to. He sees the paths that we can take, all potential ends that we have, based upon the choices that we make, and we see him pressing us upon the path that leads to him. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just one out, out of a thousand, I think we see him forcing us upon that one path, if we have one. Some people don't. Right. Some people are just evil to their core, want to be evil, mm-hmm. and there's no pushing them into not you see what I'm saying? Right. Yep. But that's based on their choice. Mm-hmm. It's based on the, 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 their chosen heart condition. Right. I guess that's something that we're actually going to be talking about at, uh, at another podcast, the broken record ministries podcast, the topic for tonight. And I, I hesitate to bring this up, but it's, it's so fitting is seeds planting seeds. Mm-hmm. And in our private conversation about that topic, I think the intent of the topic is, is us planting seeds. When we plant seeds by our words, by our deeds, by the things we do for those around us, the seeds we plant for them. But in the topic, uh, or I'm sorry, in the conversation about the topic that Ronnie hated us being on because we were wasting all the good material in the text messaging. Right. <laughs> he gets so frustrated <laughs> with that, and I don't blame him. But anyway, we started talking about, at some point, the conversation turned toward the, the parable of the sower that Jesus told. Mm-hmm. In that parable, it's not us planting the seeds. Right, they, we we mm-hmm. were talking about that parable, but still in the context of us planting seeds. But in, if you look at the parable correctly, the sower is God. God's the one planting the seeds, and He describes different soils that the seeds fall on. Mm-hmm. You know, some fell mm-hmm. on rocky ground, and they you know they sprouted up and burned away. And then he, He's describing all these different soil types and what happens to the seeds when they grow, and then describes that the but then some fell on fertile soil and they grew vibrantly. Mm-hmm. Right. But again, he's the sower. But I don't believe that the soil is just the person. I believe the soil represents the people group or the environment. 
See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I believe it represents your environment and you choose your environment in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You choose who you surround yourself with. You choose the sort of environment that you place yourself in. Right. Right. You choose your spouse. You choose your friends. You choose where to live. You choose your environment. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yep. And I believe it represents people putting themselves in environments that aren't conducive toward walking with him or seeking him. And I think that's the reason I bring that up. I think it's very similar to what we're talking about with the paths that we can be on. Mm-hmm. Some people, every path that they could possibly take leads them right back to that rocky ground where their seed's going to choke out right. and burn away every single time. But he's trying to get us on the path that leads to that fertile soil. Well, do, I mean, do you mean that they choose the path that leads back to that rocky soil? No. Well, yes and no. I, b- I believe the path that we're on is based upon our attitude mm-hmm. and the choices that we make. But God's sovereign, and he's pressing us upon the path that we need to be on. Right. Am I expressing myself correctly here? Does it make sense? I think so. So if I have two courses that I can take, I come to a juncture in my life, mm-hmm. and there's there's two directions I can go. Yeah. And I think our, our lives are so much more complex, so I'm reducing this down to a very, very simple choice that's a, a, a lot more, more simplified than it should be. But you have this juncture where one path leads to, to faith and eternal life, and the other path leads to the pit. I believe if you have that juncture... He knows his own and he knows your potential and he can come along and push you upon the right path toward him. Mm-hmm. But you still have to walk it. Right. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. he sovereignly presses you upon the right path and you have to do your end of the bargain by walking on it. Right. Some people have a juncture and both paths lead to a, lead to a pit because that's just their heart condition. Okay. It's the heart condition that they want. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Yep. No, it makes a little bit. That makes more sense. It, the the first time hearing it in my head, it sounded like you know at one point you go basically one point you go south and there's no coming back. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm. well, I and think, NASA uh, would have been right. I think in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think we can always we can always find our way back, but like you said, it has to be part of that heart condition, or else any path or any choice that you make will lead you correct to that point and actually i I know we talk about it a lot but manasseh is a really good example of what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. two chronicles chapter 33 he you know he was so evil and he he chose so much evil for himself right he put himself on a horrible path that was leading to a pit until god comes in sovereign as he is and through circumstances that manasseh had no control over led him to an assyrian prison cell Manasseh right. didn't choose that. That was forced upon Manasseh because God knew, Yahweh knew, that the only way he could get Manasseh to humble himself, to pray, and to look up, and ultimately acknowledge that Yahweh was the only God, was to get him to that Assyrian prison cell. An Assyrian prison cell that Manasseh never would have chosen for himself. Yahweh forced him there. Mm-hmm. That's an example of what I'm talking about. Right. Manasseh had one pathway that led back to God. One and God had to be the one that forced him on it. Mm-hmm. Manasseh would never have chosen that. Right. And that's sort of what I'm talking about in an extreme circumstance. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Anything else? No. no. That was that was my that was it. No slips on the ice. No. Being pretty safe. No, actually, yeah. So, um, I I looked up my uh, 
my ice cleats. So, which which are basically they're just it's like elastic with with metal in, embedded in it, and you wrap it around your shoe mm-hmm. so you don't fall. So, no no slips on the ice, not for me. Well, I don't know if I liked it or not because she had very good spiritual insights the last right. Time it's down, like so. yeah, I was like, <laughs> oh, you bumped your head, maybe I, you know bump my head again sometime. Um, and get and get another spiritual insight. <laughs> No, like I said, there was a bunch of little stuff, and um, I, I don't know if maybe I'm I'm saving a good portion of it for open mic because I think it's a couple of paths that um, um, might open some doors for some longer conversations. Very good, yeah, uh, that'll be good. Um, I did see where, and I want to I want to get this right, so I'm gonna look it up real quick. But I saw something that kind of broke my heart when I read it. Because we had just had a conversation about it, and again, it's it's a politico, hot button mm-hmm. topic, but it's on it's it's about abortion, and uh, like I said, when I I want to get it right, so I'm gonna look it up here real quick. So it's a it was a news article that I read that the the headline kind of struck me. That these Christian university universities actively promote abortion providers, so they actively promote Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And the the first the first paragraph is Students for Life of America's of Americans recently documented dozens of Christian affiliated schools that maintain ties with or reference to Planned Parenthood. Campus reform found many of these schools are also tied to abortion in other ways. And below is a sampling of Christian-affiliated universities and colleges that promote promote abortion advocacy and providers. So there's a laundry list of schools, and not not to name call. There's some pretty pretty big name Christian schools on on this list, and I mean it absolutely broke my heart when I heard that. That it's gotten to the point where the the people that are the places that people go to to lead our faith or to be taught to lead our faith are actively promoting infant side. Yeah. And I just, I don't know if it caught my eye because I mean, of course it, I mean that headline will catch anybody's eye, but I don't know why it came across my feed in a way. Only other thing that I can think of is that we had just had a conversation about it. Yeah. And I thought, and I thought to myself, during that conversation, I'm like, surely not. Surely it's not. It's got to be hyperbole or something. Yeah, it's not that deep rooted. And then that comes across my feet. And we wonder why American Christianity is in a death spiral. You know, we have good attendance. We have big mega churches, but we're spiritually, we're in a death spiral. Mm-hmm. And garbage like that's why. Promote that, normalize that, the things that he hates. And we addressed that last week in the, right. the statutes that we got into. He hates it. There's hates no it. middle ground. He loathes it. Right. He absolutely despises it. And we're we're promoting it like it's just eh, it's just a choice, no big deal. Right. You have Jesus. And that kind of uh, and that kind of led me to, um, you know, I was thinking about making making stances and, um, you know, trying to navigate your work world and your friendships and being mm-hmm. politically, politically correct. And it wasn't two days later. I was, I was 
playing with my playing with my daughter and uh she she posed the question to me daddy can again this is going to be it's another hot topic but here we go <laughs> she's like daddy can can two girls get married and i thought well first my heart sunk because i'm like i feel like i should be have taught you this already at some point but she is only 5 right and she was at, at the time she was playing with barbies right so she had two barbies and she just she she asked a question and immediately in my mind i'm like i thought i started thinking well you know the pc answer is well they can but you know technically and then but then you know the christian answer is no right and then so you try and find some kind now and i started thinking why am i trying to be politically correct mm-hmm. it's very very clear the bible is very very clear no they cannot right legally piece of paper wise in a lot of states yes you can with air quotes be married but in god's eyes no right so my my short answer to her was no and that was like i can't explain it it was like liberating liberating i don't like eventually i will sit down and have a deeper conversation with her about okay the bible says this the world does this but we follow this because Mm -hmm. this is what we believe right and this is what is written and this is what is true right yeah but for now the short answer is and and I almost got like a fighting attitude about it. Like, and if anybody says anything to you about it, we'll have a conversation about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. But it was like it's to me. It was kind of like a a, a moment of clarity of there's no more because I used to be the same way about abortion. Well, you know, in this case, in this case, mm-hmm. and that was, and I believe that was, I wholeheartedly believe that that's a weapon used by devil to basically normalize for evil purposes based upon mitigating factors. Yeah. Right. So taking the 1% of something that, of what something is used for and using it to cover up the other 99% evilly evil portion of it. Yeah. He wants you to feel guilty for saying what you know is the right thing. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. Around again, way to sum it up (laughs) that's the that's the the point that i'm circling is is i'm i don't feel bad about standing up for those things Mm -hmm. anymore and it's really funny because the next day after that ronnie posted on his uh, I, i believe it was on his broken records uh facebook page of the fans in the stadium that were like covered in yeah and like three or four inches of snow and the cat and the meme was and the cat was i don't know if it was a meme but the caption was you know if only basically if only christianity had fans like this yeah if we had this level of dedication dedication right so so if someone were to pose the question if standing up for against you know transgenderism or standing up against legalizing gay marriage against abortion means that you have nobody listening to your podcast. Would you still stand up and still do your podcast? Absolutely. Yep. 
100% because it's what's right. Yeah. It's what's written. It's what's right. Yep. I, I would rather speak to one person who is serious about seeking God than a thousand people who are perfectly content wavering. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. You know, we've got to speak his word and his word only. What you're referencing here, you know, this normalization even among Christians and, and Christian groups of really, let's be honest, with what he calls evil, point blank, with what he calls evil, it kind of kind of applies almost perfectly to what's been on my on my mind mm-hmm. recently. And it kind of started with that question Sarah posed about what is the kingdom, right? The kingdom mm-hmm. of God. And it's past couple of days, it's just come up really hot and heavy. You know yeah. what I mean? The kingdom. In a, and this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he follows it up with you know, all these things, like all the things that you need will be added to you. But the, the core of what he's saying there, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I'm going to have a few questions for you. So hopefully you came prepared for those. Oh, no. Patented questions. Deer in a headlight. What does that mean to seek the kingdom of God? To me? Hmm. So, I mean, it's, I think it goes back to loving loving him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Because in doing that, you strive for a life worthy of entering into heaven. So right. In my mind, you know, the kingdom, it, the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, his, his realm beyond this one. Right. And look in future that, you know, that, that realm that's going to come to earth. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I think it comes down to what is the kingdom of God then? Right. Right. At a, at a basic level, what is it? And I can't help, I can't help but recognize the connection with what we've been talking about the last few weeks with the intent. And specifically in our episode, the intent, the kingdom of priests. Now, just as a as a reminder of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about that that link between Peter and Exodus. Mm-hmm. Peter speaking from what we would call a new covenant context, and Exodus at Sinai. Okay, and I'm just going to read these as a refresher. And and Peter in First Peter chapter two verse nine he says, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." a people for God's own possessions that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, while they're at Sinai preparing to receive the, the, the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant, the statutes, Yahweh says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we have that link, mm-hmm. that intent of a kingdom of priests. The Jesus saying, pursue the kingdom of God. I believe it's the same thing. Right. I don't think you can you can separate those things. And we'll discuss what shifted after Sinai between Sinai and Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Where we are now, what shifted uh in a way that it created the need for the new or renewed covenant. Mm-hmm. Right? right? What shifted and required a renewal. Right. I guess is what I'm saying. We'll get into that after the golden calf. So I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead too far. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of highlighting this link between the kingdom of God and this kingdom of priests promise right. that we were given. And the kingdom of, of priests promise is essentially that we all, we, the, the body of Christ have a personal relationship with him. Correct. Okay. 
Correct. So essentially, a link between our faith in and through Jesus today compared to the kingdom of priests and ten expressed by God in Exodus all the way back at Sinai. They're one and the same. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? We're living out the intent that he expressed back then. Right. We're living the reality of what he expressed he wanted then, but the people weren't ready for. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of make sense? Yep. So, if that's the kingdom we should be seeking, what is the righteousness of that kingdom? I guess that's the next important question, because Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what is the righteousness of God in the context of the kingdom of God? I would say that that would be the the way that he wants you to live. I would agree. It's the, the, I guess, going back to, you know, to, to older English, right? The, the righteous people were considered the, the ones set apart mm-hmm. by their actions. Yes. Not just, not just what's inside, but their actual out, their hourly actions. So us seeking righteousness within that kingdom would be living essentially as Jesus did or as pursuing the Philly faith. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> pursuing the, the life of Jesus. We're, we know we're not going to be a mirror image of that, but our, our strive should be to be a mirror image of that. Right. So I've talked about discipleship a lot, discipleship a lot recently, because it's been on my heart for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Honestly, uh, discipleship is so neglected today. In Matthew, and honestly, has been for a long time. For a long time, for centuries, mm. it really has been proper discipleship. The problem is, even when we disciple, we don't disciple in the right way. Right. All right, and that comes back to what I'm essentially trying to answer here: What is His righteousness? I believe the righteousness in the context of the kingdom of God here are the it's the commandments, it's the statutes, it's the ordinances, it's the expectations of how to walk out, how to, how to walk out our life within that kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. He is essentially defining what righteousness looks like from his perspective at Sinai. So if we're seeking the kingdom of God and we have that clear link to the kingdom of priests promised at Sinai, the righteousness of the kingdom would be the terms of the covenant that he laid out for us. Mm -hmm. But without discipleship, we're not learning how to walk that out. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, and this is the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. All. All I've commanded you. And notice, we're to make disciples, not believers, not converts. We've talked about that. I think we talked about that last week, didn't we? Or did I talk to somebody else podcast. You must have talked to somebody else, but we've talked about it before where you basically, you bring somebody, you know, you, you, you witness to somebody, bring them to the faith and then that's it. Right. Move on to the next one. That's how we treat the great commission. Just acknowledge Jesus, say the sinner's prayer. Boom. I'm done. I fulfill the great commission. That's not what he says here. Mm -hmm. He says to make disciples. And then he defines what that means by teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That requires time, mm-hmm. a lot of time. You know, you're not going to accomplish that in one interaction or one day or in one sermon, right? right. Discipleship, in first century discipleship was a, a huge commitment. You spent years discipling under a rabbi. 
And remember, Jesus is never criticized for the way he disciples his followers, right. Peter, John, James. He's criticized for certain things he taught, right? right, that the Pharisees didn't like because it went against the grain of their extra biblical traditions, meaning the things that they criticized him for teaching weren't biblical. Right. They were traditional stuff. They never criticized how he discipled, though. It was a commitment. They were with him every day, walking with him, living with him, doing life with him, learning from him constantly. We have a, you know, even when you look at all four Gospels in their, in their, in their totality, we have a very brief snapshot of what discipleship for them really looked like. Mm-hmm. It was huge. Right. And he's telling us to do that for others moving forward. Right to engage in that mm-hmm. sort of discipleship. So I guess the question now is, what did he command? And I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the spot on that one, but I want to go to Jude because there's well, something fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say before you do, I want to point out that he said, you know, teach them all that I have commanded, right. not teach them the convenient stuff that I have <laughs> yeah. commanded, or teach them only the things that you feel are necessary. Mm-hmm. Teach them all that I have commanded. Yeah, front to back. Not culturally relevant stuff. Yeah. Everything. Everything. And like, you know, again, the Gospels are comparatively short when you look at how long they had to have been discipling. And he's telling them to teach everyone else all that he commanded. We don't see everything he commanded in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a reason for that because I don't think it's fully necessary. And and it's in this link to Jude, or this connection with Jude that I want to read real quick. So it's in Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude. So it's in starting in verse 4. To establish the context, he says, For certain people have secretly slipped in, those for those who from long ago have been marked out for this judgment. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into indecency and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So he's warning about people who were using grace as an excuse to sin against the Father's commands. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he establishes it's it's it, in doing so they're denying our master and Lord, who he defines as Yeshua the Messiah. That's the link I, I, I want right. to show there because it's important for this next verse. So the Lord here is Yeshua, Jesus. Sorry, it's Yeshua in my mm-hmm. translation. Right. Yeshua is Hebrew or Aramaic for Jesus. And then verse five says this: Now I wish to remind you, though you have come to know all things, that the Lord, Jesus, once having saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's he talking about there? The Exodus, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's saying that Jesus personally led the Israelites out of Egypt during the Exodus. Hmm. I'll let you wrap your head around that for a second. Jude is telling us that it was Jesus himself who led the Israelites out of Egypt. So when they're interacting with Yahweh... When Moses is interacting with Yahweh and having these face-to-face conversations, Jude seems to be telling us he was talking to the pre-incarnate Jesus. Right. Where did the Exodus lead? Where did they end up? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And what did this Jesus, who we're told led them out of Exodus, tell them at Mount Sinai? When he, when his voice was heard from the mountain, what was he speaking to him? The commandments. The Ten Commandments. And when Moses is led up the mountain afterward, what's he taught by Jesus? The statutes. He's taught the statutes by Jesus. According to Jude, it was him. It was him right. as the image of the invisible God that did all this. Mm-hmm. 
Is that not paradigm shifting? It is. I've not, I don't think I've ever read that before. The reason I make this connection is if Jesus is telling us in Matthew that to make disciples, we are to teach them everything that he's commanded. If he's the one that commanded Moses from Sinai, wouldn't it include that? Yeah. Like, how can you, why wouldn't it? Well, yeah. Why would he change? Why would he shift? Why would he change his mind? We were the ones that messed up. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Yeah, we we were the ones that caused it to go south. Exactly. I know, you know, the theoph we talked about the theophany before, it's pretty popular theology. That in in many cases where you see this God figure, it's Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And they'll point to things like the uh, fiery furnace right. from Daniel. The fourth figure in the furnace. And I believe they're right. I believe that's Jesus too. On few occasions will you see them make this connection that it's Jesus at Sinai commanding, commanding the commandments and the statutes that in too many cases, mainstream Christianity sets aside and ignores. And I think that's why they don't want to acknowledge this is Jesus there, because if they did, they'd have to acknowledge Jesus taught this. Right. And if he taught it then, and he's telling us to obey everything he's commanded now, it would include that. It would include the fourth commandment. It would include the Sabbath. It would include the the appointed times. It would include everything that he taught from Sinai if that was him, if it was coming out of his mouth. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just mind-blowing to me that we don't have a New Testament reference that explicitly tells us Jesus was the fourth figure in the furnace, yet we believe that implicitly. But we have Jude here telling us explicitly it was Jesus at Sinai, and we don't make that connection. Seems like there might be an ulterior motive there. Right. And that worries me. Just as a uh, rabbit chase, too. Moses and Elijah, you, you know what the uh, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration is, right? In Mark chapter 9, where Peter and James and John see Jesus, and he's with Moses and Elijah. I should, but I don't. That's okay. It's in Mark chapter 9. I'm not going to read it, but like I say, we don't know where the mountain is. We don't know what mount it's talking about. Mm-hmm. I have my suspicions, but... I'm not going to voice those because it's, it's it's opinion. We're not really told. But we know they're on a mountain. It says they're on a high mountain. Mm-hmm. And Jesus goes up. And then after six days, Peter, James, and John go up and they see Jesus. And he's radiating. Like he looks like the God that he is. Right? Mm-hmm. And it actually caused them fear at first when they saw it. And Moses and Elijah are there with him. Moses and Elijah to my knowledge, are the only two prominent figures scripturally that had a personal encounter with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And those are the two figures that Jesus appears with to the three disciples on this high mountain. That's interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. There are so many occasions where Jesus points us back back to Sinai. And that's, I'm not going to get into all of it. That's not the only connection to Sinai in the transfiguration event. The, The six days and then he speaks on the seventh. Like, like, feel free, those of you listening, go back and, and, and read the, the Transfiguration account in Mark chapter 9 specifically, and then read the, the Exodus account leading to Sinai. There are several direct connections, several direct connections that you see between mm-hmm. those two events. Too much to be coincidental. It's right. intentional. It's very intentional. It's, he's, he's, he's on purpose and with intent pointing us to Sinai right. again. And like I say, if you've been listening to this series on this podcast, it's not the first time. It's not the only time he does it. 
Right, all roads lead to Sinai. It seems to. It seems it seems that Sinai points us directly to Jesus, while Jesus points us directly back to Sinai. And probably probably because he was there for both, according to Jude. <laughs> right. Right? right? Like these are the two the, the, the two occasions where Jesus offers us to, he's offering us a covenant. Right. In both cases. It's Sinai he offered us the old covenant, and Calvary he offers us the new covenant. It doesn't mean the terms change though. Right. It's almost it's almost as if that that was the beginning of Jesus's discipleship, giving us the covenant, mm-hmm. and then from there on telling us how to walk it out, then coming back to fulfill the prophecy. Right. Right. He doesn't need to repeat commands he's already given. I guess is the point I'm kind of making. Mm-hmm. I think we we see him say, you know, teach them everything I command you. So we dissect just the New Testament, just the Gospels. And maybe some Paul, and we don't really look anywhere else. But if it was him giving the command to Sinai, why does he need to repeat himself? And you know, we shouldn't require Jesus to be there. The fact that the Father gives us the command should be enough, right? Should be, you know. And really, it's the Father giving. They're they're one. We'll get into that a little bit later in the episode. The the idea of oneness mm-hmm. between the Father and the Son, but uh, he gives the commands. He shouldn't have to repeat it ad nauseum for us to obey him. I think that's why he's pointing us. To sign, I think he's pointing us to the terms of the covenant mm-hmm. that he's offering us. We have grace, but we always had grace. Grace isn't new. Manasseh had grace. We just talked about him. Right. Right. The only reason he was forgiven was because of grace. Without that, he should have been executed by Yahweh. If right. Yahweh was just, was only just and not merciful, right. he would have killed Manasseh. He's always been merciful. Mm-hmm. Justice has always been has been been mixed in with mercy, right. and often to a greater degree, mercy. Right. It's like you said last week. He's he's he never has a desire for us to fall away from. Right. I think Jesus does a good well. He does a good job at everything. It's the wrong way to say it. <laughs> I think we have a, a a case where he very succinctly defines what a commendable faith looks like. In the 12th chapter of Revelation, verse 17, he's talking about, this is the context, the future context, it's in the tribulation period, and he's talking about the saints who mm-hmm. are being hunted down by the dragon, by Satan, right. and it says that they maintain the testimony of Jesus and obey the commandments. So that's the righteousness of the kingdom that he's talking about that we should be seeking. He is our king. Right. He's establishing the kingdom of priests, that is the kingdom of God, and the righteousness of the kingdom is his commandments that he gave. Right. And I just don't think you can ignore that connection that Jude gives us. Not if we're rightly handling the word of truth. Right. You mentioned being set apart a minute ago. That's holiness. Right. That's that's what the word holy means. Right. Essentially. And that's this what we're talking about here. This is what it means to be holy as he is holy. It's what he tells us in Leviticus eleven forty four. And I'm not going to get into that, but that's those of you listening, that's that verse is cited frequently from pulpits. It's repeated by Peter in First John or First Peter chapter one verse sixteen. But you see that repeated frequently. Be holy as he is holy. Read that full chapter and see if you can identify the gross irony there. That will take that one little snippet and apply that and ignore the surrounding context of it. But I'm not going to get into that on the podcast here. But right. the point is, we're called to be holy as he is holy, and that's what that means. That's kadosh in Hebrew, and it literally means to be set apart for a special purpose. 
Do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness to be set apart? I think that's the point. Mm-hmm. He's literally, he's, he's visibly setting us apart and spiritually setting us apart from the things in the ways of the world. And that's where this kind of applies to what you were talking about. How so many believers, they want the blessings of God, but they want their foot dipped in with the, the profanity of the world. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, I'll wrap this up because we're getting long on our first segment, but a friend of mine had an astute quote uh, just a couple days ago. And they said, too many believers have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in Babylon, not realizing that the devil owns the fence in between. And how true is that? That's pretty on the nose. It's on the nose and it's very sobering. And it worries me for people. We have to make a choice to seek the Father's kingdom first and in every area of our lives. I told you, Chris, that I had like some, some pretty intense, what's the right word, conviction? placed upon me with some things in my life mm-hmm. the other day. I told you I was going to talk about that this week, but I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to hold off until we do our open mic okay. next week. I will just say we really need to get our foot out of Babylon. I don't, I don't think we realize what a grip it has on us until we, until we try to pull the fangs out, I guess. Right. Uh, I know. I have so I, I know what you're saying. It's like, like I was saying, right. The simple, the simple act of, of taking a stand, even in my own home with, in the privacy with my daughter and saying no, mm-hmm. you know, two, two females cannot be married. It was liberating. Yes. Like, and you, and again, you don't know how, you don't know how steeped you are in that until you take a step back from it. Yeah. And how much of a, of a spiritual effect it has on you, things that you don't think do. And it's just, you know, I'm being kind of vague now. Like I said, I'll get into specifics next week. But we we like to serve God, to think we're serving God. But then in our hobbies and in our private time, we're drowning ourselves in the things of Satan. Mm-hmm. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's what we're doing. And when you, you don't realize how choking it is until you, you get it off you. And it's that's the right word. It's liberating. Once you do, you just feel like something's lifted. Right. I guess that's all I had. Right on. That was what was on my mind. It's a good teaser for next week. I think it'll be a good discussion. I think so, too. I'm excited about it. That brings us to the close of our first segment. And uh, Chris and I are going to take a short break. And as we do that, we're going to play this week's featured song. This week is from a friend of mine named Jordan Thomas, and it's called Back to the Root. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Talk to you on the other side. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevot
Back to the Root by Jordan Thomas. Thanks for listening. And this week, we are continuing our intent series for our main topic. But we are going to take a break from the statutes because I kind of wanted, and there's a reason for this, but I want to shift back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I wanted to look at Mark chapter 5. So that's where we're going to be looking at this week. Next week will be our open discussion so it'll be the following week that we get back into the statutes and ordinances from Exodus. So we're in chapter 22, right? Mm-hmm. In Exodus? Yep. Okay. Yep, we just finished 21, starting 22. Okay. So like I said, we're just going to take a take a break from that. But again, there's a reason for this, because there's a point that I want to highlight from Mark chapter 5. So unless you have anything that you want to say before. Nope. I just found it. Oh, you just found it? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I didn't bring my... For the listeners, I didn't bring my analog version of my Bible, my, my paperback version. <laughs> so I had to like quickly download a, like I could, like 
we're in a, we're in the basement of a church. I could have found millions of them, right? But I don't, you know. So I I downloaded an app. So it took me a while to get to where I needed to be, but I'm here now. Well, I kind of feel like it's appropriate since we're we're highlighting all these connections between Jesus and his incarnation and Sinai. It just feels appropriate to hop back and forth, mm-hmm. right? In this right. series, if we're going to identify God's intent for us in in the new covenant that we're in now, it seems appropriate that we hop back and forth between the covenant given at Sinai and Jesus as he lives it out. Right. Shows us how to walk out the covenant, right? Mm-hmm. And really, there's really just, it's. I just thought this would be kind of fun and a nice change of pace more mm-hmm. than anything. There's really one fairly short point that I want to make toward the end of this chapter, but I thought it would be, I thought it would be edifying just to go through the whole chapter. All right. Sounds good. So we'll just read through this. And as usual, Chris, just stop me if there's something that you want to talk about. I'll do. All right. And again, this is Mark chapter five, starting in verse one. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Is that how you say that? Gerasenes? Gerasenes? You you would be better at that than me. Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to say Gerasenes because the first thing I said is probably wrong. Right. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man from the graveyard with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but the chains had been ripped apart by him and the shackles broken. No one was strong enough to tame him. And through it all, night and day, at the graveyard and in the mountains, he kept screaming and gashing himself with stones. Pretty scary stuff. Right. As a side note, just pausing there. I don't understand how so many Christians can read their Bible and genuinely not believe in this kind of thing. Right. You either believe it or you don't, right? Mm-hmm. You either believe the, the Bible is the word of God or it's not. Right. There's really no middle ground. Mm-hmm. Believe all of it or believe none of it. It just, it, it blows me away how many Christians genuinely don't believe in the supernatural. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like nobody could be possessed to the point of having, you know, boundless strength, being able to pull yeah. change some stone. That's always and, been one of my biggest shocks with fellow believers is how many just, it's almost like they're just Christian because it's their, it's just traditional for them. Mm-hmm. It's just what they've always been. Right. Like a label. It's really just a label and nothing more for some people, mm-hmm. I think. I think, and also too, I think by and large, maybe many people haven't witnessed it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. Yeah, I could see that. So it's like, you know, until they actually witness something to that magnitude, they might not believe in the super, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of hard for them to fat, I guess not believe it, but it's hard for them to fathom the supernatural. Right. Like being, being, you know, and I, and I would assume in this, in this situation, it's, he's demonically possessed. Yeah. To the point of, to the point of, like I said, being able to pull change from stone and, and cutting himself with stones and, and just really gnarly stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. That any normal human being would have died from. Yeah, absolutely. We need to acknowledge that it's a very real threat. I guess the reason I'm pausing on this and highlighting that it, it bothers me that there are so many believers that don't believe in it. Not only is it real, it's dangerous. And you can open doorways to it. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. These things are around us. And these things hate us. And these things want to attack us. Right. We need to be very mindful of that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I, yeah. I believe that you can open doorways into oh, your yeah. home by the sort of things that you invite into your home, whether it's a Ouija board or a spell book or yeah. even movies, games. Yeah. I think that stuff can open doorways for them. Yeah, messing, messing with things that you shouldn't be messing with. Yes. I say that all the time. To, you know, if we're watching a movie or something and I'm like, yeah, they're messing with something they shouldn't be messing with. Yeah. Like, like basically you have no idea the ramifications of, of a true ramifications could wait for you on the other side of that. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. Continuing in verse six. When he, the demon possessed man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, what's between you and me? Jesus, son of the most high, I'm warning you in the name of God, do not torment me. What does your translation say there? If you don't mind my, my, so I, I actually snagged a, I think it's the King James version. So I'll, I'll just read it. So starting in six, but when Jesus saw, but when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I endure thee by God, that thou torment me not. I guess I pause there because I've never seen a translation state, I'm warning you in the name of God, do not torment me. I've never seen the way my translation stated it. I've never seen one say it quite like that. And every translation I've ever read, he's always pleading with Jesus not to torment him. Right. I don't know what this word means, but it says, I adjure thee, A-D-J-U-R-E, thee, by God, that thou torment me not. So I'm not quite sure what the A-D-J, adjure means. Means to urge. I, so we'll change the, so we'll change it to, I urge thee by God, that thou torment me not. I think that's probably a better translation. It's 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 more in line with every other translation I've ever read there. Mm-hmm. The reason that's important, the reason I'm stopping there and spending so much time on that, even the demon is recognizing who Jesus is and his authority. And that's why there's a there's a problem with this where it's where it's almost implying like the demon is warning Jesus. Where in every other translation I've read, he's always pleading with Jesus. Right. The reason that matters is because I believe the demon here is acknowledging who Jesus is. The link that we that we looked at in our first segment, mm-hmm. where Jude says Jesus was the one leading them out of ex, out of Sinai, mm-hmm. out of Egypt. Right. The demon knows this. Yeah. The demon knows who Jesus really is. Absolutely. That's that's. Ex- exactly what I got from, from the passage is he's recognizing who he is and he's like pleading with him. Yes. Don't, don't torment me. I know who you are. Uh huh. Just leave, just pass on by. Leave me be. Why do you think he ran to him? As opposed to running away from him. Why do you think he ran to him? It says he ran to him and bowed down before him. I think it's opinion. 
Right. Because we're not explicitly told. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. So I guess I'm kind of reading this again. So when he when it says, but when he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God most high? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So, so if we're, if we're dealing with a, with a, with a demon possessed man, I think the man ran to worship him, the the actual being man himself. Mm -hmm. But then the demon showed up and said, don't torment me. Right. That would be my opinion. I said, there's no wrong answer because we're not told. I think Jesus forced him to. I think Jesus called out to him and forced him to, in order to a liberate the possessed man and b so that others could see his authority. So we have this account. Does that make sense? That actually, <laughs> my opinion keeps changing, but that makes sense of, of that. If Jesus has power over this, he can make him run mm-hmm. to that point. So we sort of, if that's the case, we have a double affirmation of, of the fact that Jesus is more than just a prophet. Right. He's more than just a man. There's more to him. Right. I mean, if he, if he was, if he was truly afraid of him, why wouldn't he have, why wouldn't he have run and hid unless he was made to run to him? Right. Right. So in like, let's, let's read this next couple, couple okay. verses real quick to, to tie into that, because we're told what the demon says to Jesus there. Mm-hmm. But then starting in verse eight, it says for Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus began questioning him, what is your name? Let's stop there. You would think if if they were having an exchange back and forth, the first thing Mark would have accounted was Jesus telling him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, what's your name? And then the demon pleading. Right. But it says he accounts the demon pleading first and then says, for Jesus had said, meaning that happened before. But right before the demon says this, we're told that the the demon-possessed man was at a distance and then ran to him. And I know this is conjecture, and it, it could be just that the, the, the Mark, the narrator here, is just putting things out of order for poetic mm-hmm. effect. What if Jesus is having this exchange with the demon at the distance? Like this is happening while he's forcing the demon into his presence to bow down. Because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't believe a demon would willingly bow down to worship. Mm-hmm. That had to have been by force. All right. There's so much here. Like I say, I, I know a lot of this, what I'm getting into is kind of opinion, but there's so much here that really shows us just how much authority Jesus wields for those who try to mitigate his authority or teach that he's just a man, like certain more heretical sects would, would teach. Right. You know what I mean? And I guess that makes more sense to, in the sense where at this point, it's not, it's not like the man has control and then the demon takes control for a while and the man, you know, like repossesses his own body. Clearly from the account at, up until this point, the demon has full control. Yeah, it's all the demon. It's the whole, it's, yeah, 100%. There's no, there's not man left, right? And so that's so, and. At so least yeah. now, like, right. like at the very, at the very least, Jesus is forcing this thing to bubble to the surface mm-hmm. to have this interaction with it. 
but yeah, you're right. Like we don't have any, we don't have anything from the man until after he's, and we'll see that in a second until after he's liberated. So let's continue reading uh, halfway through. Well, I'll just start again in verse nine. I already read it. But then Jesus began questioning him, what is your name? And the possessed man answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. He kept begging him not to send them out of the country. Now, a lar- how, what does your translation say? Verse 10. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Okay, so it translates that the same. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Okay, starting in verse 11. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside nearby. The unclean spirits urged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, so we may enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the cliff and were drowned in the sea. Pause there. Again, opinion. Why would they want to enter the pigs if they were going to cause them to rush down and drown. What would be your opinion here? Because Jesus shows it, and this is just as a side note, it's interesting. Jesus shows the mercy here. Mm-hmm. It implies that he could have done much worse to them. Right. But could, he chooses to, them. yeah, right. he grants their, he seemingly grants their request. Right. So even to these, sorry, even to right. these things, he seems to be merciful. But is that really what's happening here? Or is Jesus making a bigger point? I think it, you know, when I first read it, it was basically the, to me, the, the demonic possession made the, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> made the, made the swine go like crazy mm-hmm. and they just went crazy and ran and drowned themselves. Like they couldn't control them. Like maybe. they couldn't control them. Yeah. And that could be. I mean, cause you're taking, you're taking essentially a non-sentient being and trying to make it sentient through demonic possession. Right. So maybe at that point, but then, but now kind of looking at it from another perspective is, I I, I think, again, it's a showing of power. Yeah, I am merciful and I can grant this wish, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna snuff you out. Right. So... You still, you still are a demon, and you still need stuff now. So that's what he does, right? Because I feel like if he had not granted them that wish, then it would have like, like Jesus' concern was the man. Absolutely. So take him out I of agree. the take him out of the man immediately, and then I can deal with whatever whatever mode of transportation more or less they have at that point, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to drown. I don't want to see this man jump off. I don't want to have to make this man jump off a cliff and lose the man in in the sea. So I allow them to be possessed to pigs, which can be, which then I can lead them into the sea. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So that, that would kind of be my opinion at first. Like you pushed them off, granted them the request and then. Right. Press, press the pigs Only, over the cliff. Yeah, basically to trap them in a mode of transportation that could be sacrificed. Yeah. I think it's a valid opinion. I think my opinion, and again, like I said, I'm stressing this too much probably, but this is, I want to, I want it clear. We're not explicitly told. So we do kind of have to make some interpretations and, right. and share some opinion. But I think he's killing two birds with one stone here. Because he could have just probably cast the demons into a, into the the pit, right? Right. If he had wanted to, 
we need to remember that it's a herd of pigs, which means they had them for food. They were raising them, right? They were herding the pigs. That was an act of disobedience. We're explicitly told in the law what what does constitute food and what God considers unclean to eat. And he's emphatic about pig. And even he even reiterates the uncleanness of pig in, I believe it's Isaiah, when he when he talks about how, how people have profaned his instructions. Right. Mm-hmm. He mentions it again. And he specifically mentions pig meat in that context. So the just the act of raising these herds of pigs was an act of defiance from the people. So I think he's he's accomplishing several things all at once here. He's liberating the possessed man, first and foremost. That's his priority number one, out of love. Right. He's getting the demons out of the picture so they can't oppress anyone else. That's secondary, out of love. But at the same time, he's using the demons to frenzy up this herd of pigs and drive them over a cliff, I believe, to make a point to the people. And you sort of see in the reaction, the people, I think the people kind of kind of understood <laughs> what he was getting at. So in verse 14, it says, the herdsmen, and the ones who were tending that that herd, ran away and told the pe- that told the sorry the herdsmen ran away and told the town and countryside, and they came to see what had happened. Now they came to Jesus and saw the madman, who had had the legion. He was sitting there dressed in clothes and in his right mind. The people were scared. I'm gonna stop there for a second. I don't think they were scared that the man was liberated because that doesn't make any sense. Why would they be why would they be afraid that the man was liberated from demon possession, but not afraid of the demon possession that we had described earlier? Right. It makes no sense. I think they were afraid of the event that occurred with the demons. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. I would have I would have said I I think I thought they were might be yeah, because what they saw they saw what had transpired, mm-hmm. but then were like well now, now where is he going to turn his wrath? Yeah, like he's already pulled. He's pulled the demon out of this, the legion out of this man, put him into the pigs. Had our pigs died, which we knew was wrong. Mm-hmm. What's now, next? Now where his where his retrib- Yeah, I get. Where's the retribution going to go from there? I agree. I agree. I think that's the issue, and I I think we see a little hint of that in the next verse. In verse sixteen, it says. Those who had seen it described in detail what had happened to the man, plagued by a demon, and they also told about the pigs. So secondarily, they told about what happened to the pigs. Then in verse 17, after they're told about the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to leave their country. After seeing what they saw, after being told what they were told, they told him to get out. We don't want you here. That stuns me. Every time I read that, I think... That stuns me. And I, I do. I believe it came down to a heart of disobedience. Right. Wherever you stand on the clean and unclean issue, that's not my, my point is not to debate that or to, to press that. But the point is they were living in disobedience. That is uncontestable. Mm-hmm. We know this. We know what the law says. We know that they knew they should have been obeying those instructions. They weren't. It makes you wonder what else they were living in defiance of. Right. That they wanted him out of their country so quickly. Right. And that's, that's kind of, I think that kind of hints to when they, you know, and they were afraid because they knew everything else that 
what just wasn't what what just wasn't on the surface right there in mm-hmm. front of them. They knew everything else that was going on behind closed doors was wrong. Right. And like if if you stay here and you keep digging around, you're gonna find this. So please just leave. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like there were a lot more here that needed deliverance than just the the guy with the demons. Mm-hmm. Right. There were some people here living in sin. They right. needed deliverance just as much. And Jesus is mindful of this, and I believe this this these next couple verses show exactly what Jesus' agenda was here. And it's pretty powerful. So in verse 18, he says, it says, As he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been infested with demons kept begging to remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but he told him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much Yahweh has, how much God, how much the Lord has done for you, how he showed you mercy. So just pausing there for a second, Jesus won't let him come with him. It's not because Jesus didn't love him. He had a different purpose for him. And there's a lesson here, too. This guy wanted to go and be a disciple of Jesus. That's what he's asking for. He wants to be one of Jesus' disciples. Mm -hmm. Right? Who wouldn't? Right. Who wouldn't want that? At that point, yeah. That's the, that's the apex. That's the high point. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. You want to be his disciple. But Jesus says, no, I have something else for you. There's a lesson in that for all of us. I think we all want to do these great, grand, amazing things for him. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's going to tell us, no, I have something different for you. Because there's a specific group of people that I need you for. And we, not, we need not to be so prideful in the things, the big, great things we want to accomplish that we ignore him or disobey him in that. I once heard it said, we're so busy trying to connect the dots from God that we, that we lose focus on the dot that he's given us. We need to just focus on our dot mm-hmm. and stop trying to connect them. Right. And that's essentially what Jesus is telling this guy here. He's like, no, I have Peter, James, John, these guys, they have their dot. I have a dot for you. Right. And it may not look as important, but it is. So just obey. Go tell your friends. And what's cool here, he only tells him to tell his friends and family, right? Well, just his friends, I guess, actually. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And look at the next verse, verse 20. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. So he wanted to go with Jesus to be a disciple. Jesus says, no, I have something else for you. These people... You, the you and I just talked about, who it seems needed some deliverance from some from, from some sin issues, mm-hmm. from some rebellion issues. Here, go tell your friends in that area, and because he obeyed and minded his dot and just worked the row that he was given, we're told that he was preaching in the Decapolis, and all that listened were amazed. Right. So, just. In case somebody is not familiar with what a Decapolis is, what is that? I believe it's just the name of that area. Oh, yeah, because it's with a capital. It literally just means 10 cities. It just means... Oh, okay. It's just that... that The the land preached... Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like like an important like town building or something, but I missed the point that it was capitalized, so it was a place. Yeah, just his home Sorry. region. So he's preaching in this home region. That's, I, I, that's the whole reason. You see that Jesus comes here. That's all he does. He comes over to this side of the sea. He liberates this guy. He 
pushes the the pigs into the sea, which forces this this confrontation between Jesus and the people, and they tell him to get out. So he leaves. After talking to this guy and giving him his commission, mm-hmm. he leaves. That's all he does here. And then leaves this guy who was demon-possessed, as, as, as rock bottom as you can possibly get, leaves him there to be a, a, a Jesus street preacher. <laughs> it's essentially right. what he leaves him yeah. there to be. And these people that had kicked Jesus out of their country become believers because of that one formerly demon-possessed man that he left there because he knew that of all the people there, it was the guy possessed by the demon that would pay attention to his dot and do what he was told. Mm-hmm. Again, there is a huge lesson in that. He was set apart? Set apart, absolutely. So then it transitions over to the this next section in Mark, which is really my highlight for the intent. I wanted to make that point about the demon-possessed man there because I think it's, a, I think it's an important one that we kind of forget about sometimes. Right. So starting in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over in the boat again to the other side, a big crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Like, what a culture shift from get out of our country, we don't want you here, to a massive crowd. Jesus, you're back. You're back. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus comes. Seeing him, he falls at his feet. So Jairus seeing Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet. Sorry, it's kind of not clear unless you're reading it and you see the capital H sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? He begs Jesus a great deal, saying, My little daughter is near death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be healed and live. Just pausing. This is a synagogue leader. I think that's important to identify. They weren't all bad. I think we have too often in the churches this really borderline anti-Semitic attitude that every Pharisee was bad, every Torah teacher was bad, every synagogue leader was bad, and ultimately every Jew, every Jew was bad. No, they weren't. Right. This guy comes and he shows complete trust. He believed. Mm-hmm. He absolutely believed that Jesus could heal her. Starting again in verse 24, So Jesus went off with him, and a big crowd was following him and pressing upon him. And there was a woman with a blood flow for twelve years, who had suffered much under many doctors. It's interesting how it works that. Suffered under many doctors. It was the doctors causing her suffering. Right. Suffered, mine says, suffered many things of many physicians. Yeah. I'm not going to dive too much into the connection we could make there, but I think that there is a connection and a warning there. It was the doctors and physicians causing her suffering. Mm -hmm. Just remember that moving forward in the world as it is today. Continuing on, she had spent all that she had without benefit. Instead, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came through the crowd from behind and touched his garment. For she kept saying, if I touch even his clothes, I shall be healed. Right away, the blood flow stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. At once, Jesus, knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples responded, You see the crowd pressing upon you, and you say, Who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done this. But the woman, scared and shaking, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. That's purely the power of trust. Right. Like, to me, he's saying there, 
you could have touched my clothes and not had this faith and nothing would have happened. Mm -hmm. But because you had such faith in the touching of my clothes, you were healed. Absolutely. 100% what he's saying. She didn't say in her heart, if I touch, if I touch his garment, I might be healed. Right. She said, I will be. I know it. If I can just get close, this is what she's saying. If I can just get close to him, if I can just touch him, I know I'll be healed. Right. I know who he is. I know what he's capable of. I know he'll heal me. That's just awesome. And just, it kind of goes to me, it kind of goes to show you. So who was, who was there because everybody was there and who was there because they believed. Right. So like, like he's like, it says that he sensed virtue going out from him. Mm -hmm. Right. And all these people that are touching him, nobody else pulled that from him. Nobody else pulled that energy, that supernatural energy from him except for this one woman because her faith was so strong. Right. So that tells me that so being surrounded by people that were only there because everybody else was keeping your faith is what's important. Yes. Right. Cause if you don't, then you're just there. Yeah. I think an argument can be made that the vast majority of the people there were probably there for the show. That's yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. They were there for the show. They were there to be fed. Mm hmm. But they weren't there because they really believed like this woman and like the synagogue leader did. Mm -hmm. Of all the people there, those are the two in this account that are highlighted for their faith, right. for their genuine belief. And that's, that's a warning to us all. It's one thing to carry the label of believer. It's another thing to truly, in your heart, believe. Yeah. Those, are, those are two very different classes of believer. Right. I'm not saying the one is saved and the other isn't. That's not my job. I'm saying there are levels. And what he's looking for is genuine, heartfelt belief. Starting again in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, messengers come from the house of the synagogue leader saying, your daughter is dead. Why do you still trouble the teacher? But ignoring what they said, Jesus tells the synagogue leader, do not be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, Jacob, and John, the brother of Jacob. They come to the house of the synagogue leader. He sees a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. After entering, he said to them, Why make such a fuss and weep? The child didn't die, but is sleeping. They start jeering at him. But after sending all of them out, he takes the child's father and mother and those with him and enters where the child was. Then taking hold of the child's hand, he tells her, Talitha Kaun, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, and they were overcome with astonishment. But he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said something to eat. Something to eat should be given her. That's the end of the chapter. That's where we're going to stop. Uh, before I get to the point that I wanted to make, we're given explicitly... The, check this real quick. The Aramaic, yeah. That's what I thought. It's the Aramaic, that Talitha Ka'un. It's one of the few occasions where we're told the Aramaic that he, that he spoke, the actual syllables he spoke to resurrect her, mm -hmm. right? Which kind of highlights in a pretty powerful way what we talked about last week a little bit. We talked about the, the importance of words, right? Right. 
And it sort of applies to that, but this really highlights just how powerful words can be. When Jesus spoke these specific words, there was power in that. Like going all the way back to Genesis, he speaks the world into being. Mm-hmm. He uses words. It's words he uses to create. And here it's words he uses to resurrect, to cause a miracle. Mm-hmm. I think that's something to to be mindful of. Absolutely. Right. I will I will point out too that when when Jesus said the damsel is not dead but sleeping, the first thing that everybody did mm-hmm. was laugh at him. Yeah. At him. Yeah. At Jesus. Laughed at him. And knowing in that all circumstance, that he, no right. doubt. Yeah. Like the the context of that, they're there ostensibly, they're there to mourn with the family and their reaction to the father bringing Jesus in to heal the child or to, in this case, resurrect the child was mockery and jeering and laughter. It makes you wonder why were they really there? Right. Cause it clearly wasn't because they actually cared all that much or they wouldn't have reacted that way. Right. You know, I could see if you didn't believe being aghast at what he said, but jeering, laughing, mm-hmm. that's evidence of a pretty dark heart condition. I think. Right. Seems like they were there for a wake. Yeah. Get fed. But it seems like he was a synagogue leader, so I'm sure he's fairly wealthy. Yeah. Kind of get fed, hobnob with the, with the higher ups of the, the elite of the town. Mm -hmm. But did they, were they really, did they believe, you know? Yeah. Well, they certainly, they certainly didn't believe. (laughs) Yeah, no, they didn't. For sure. And I, I would argue they didn't, they didn't care one bit about the little girl. Right. Or they would they would have been too overcome with grief to have laughed, even if right. it was somebody making a claim that you genuinely thought was nuts. Right. So the highlight I wanted to make to close this out this week, and in, in bringing this back to the overarching intent of this intent series, right, mm-hmm. is what he says to the synagogue leader when he's told that his child is dead. He says, Do not be afraid, only believe. And that ties us back to the woman with the blood, too. She was healed because of what? She truly... Is it her belief? She genuinely believed. There's... And this will be familiar if you listen to the song. I didn't play it for you, Chris. I apologize. You'll have to listen later. Okay. <laughs> but the song we chose for the song break, the, the very first thing that Jordan sings is what's called the Shema. Sings it in Hebrew. And it goes, it, Shema... Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's an extraordinarily holy prayer in Judaism, mm. right? Uh, Adonai there is a replacement for the name Yahweh. They don't speak the name Yahweh out loud. Uh, I disagree with that. It's the same concept of why when you come to, in the Old Testament, Lord, all caps, in English, they're replacing the name of God there with Lord instead. It should say Yahweh or have the oh, Tetragrammaton, yeah. right? Okay. So it, it, if if you were saying his name, it would be Shema Israel Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh a God, is what it would be. Mm-hmm. And this comes from Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read this reference. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what that translates to in English, What I just mm-hmm. what I just said. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
These words which I am commanding you today are to be on your heart. You are to teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. He's talking about the commandments there. Right. So again, the Shema that I've read is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel. And there's two words that I want to focus on in that Shema. Mm This will make sense in a minute, I hope. Hopefully this will make sense in a second. The first is Shema. Very first. And that's what what translated as hear. But it's so much much deeper than that. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Here in English, we just just hear, let it enter our ear hole. You know what I mean? And right. let, it, let it bounce around our brain a little bit. It's more than that. It's not just hearing. Shema in Hebrew is, it's describing a listening with seriousness or with true belief, right? That's how like, it ties to Like feeling it in your soul. Yes. Not just hearing the words, but knowing training yourself up to know that they're true, that there's no doubt in your mind and hearing with an intent to actionably put them into practice. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what he's telling them there. He's like, hear with the intent to obey these words I'm commanding you. Hear this. Right. Right. And I think that's what Jesus is telling the synagogue leader there. It's obviously not telling him the Shema, but when he says believe, it's not just tacit mental assent, right? There's more to it. He's asking the synagogue leader to what you just said, feel this in your soul, right? Right. Don't just, don't just believe that I'm going to do this. Feel it, know it, live it, right? Right. And he did. He wouldn't have come to Jesus otherwise. He comes to Jesus with complete faith. And let's look at the woman with the blood flow. She not, she, she lives out this Shema right? The Shema word. She believed in her heart, in her heart of hearts, that if she could just get to him and touch him, she'd be healed. What did she do with that belief? She pushed her way through the crowds. She crawled through. She risked getting trampled. She risked getting mocked. She was sick. We're already told that. She, She probably felt like garbage the entire time she was doing it, but she put her belief into practice. And she, she walked out that belief. She didn't just say to herself in her home, man, if I could just get close to Jesus, I bet if I touched him, I could be healed. Right? Right. She said, I know. I know. And I'm going to wait here until he comes back. I'm going to wait wait here until I see him. And then when I do, I don't care how many people I have to push through. I'm going to, to get to him to touch him because I know if I act this belief out, I will be healed. And she was. Right. It's so important. It's not just important for her and the synagogue leader. It's important for right. all of us. I think... Two, so two things, you know, so basically we have physicians doing everything in their power, financially draining this woman mm-hmm. and she's still not healed, but she knew God's power was so great that even touching his robe, touching his garment would heal her Yeah, after these physicians had done everything in their power and she got worse. Yeah, right. she'd been failed by everybody. That's how that's how deep that faith was. So, the next point I think I'll, I'll I'll wait till our closing arguments. So I'll let you continue. All right, sounds good. All right, I'm so, gonna need something to close. I don't have anything to close okay. with really. Once I make my right point, I'm done. So that'd be perfect. The second word I wanted to identify there was a cod. 
and it literally means one. But there's another there's another occurrence of this that I think helps us to understand what kind of oneness we're talking about here. So again, this is the Shema. It's in it's in it's in the context of Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? He's saying Yahweh is one. Right. In Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four is talking about marriage. And I don't have the the reference right in front of me. You can you can look it up, but it's talking about marriage. When a man and a woman come together and marry, it says that they become one wow. flesh. It uses that same Hebrew word there, ekad, mm-hmm. one. Do they morph together, creepy horror movie style, and become like one? Um, um, uh, one amoebus blob, yeah, amoebus blob entity. Yeah. No, no, you're still two distinct persons, right? But you're one. How are you one? What does that mean? That your that your that your being is linked with that other person, right? And you're intense, right? Right. I believe it's about you. You, you come together and you become one. You, I think you're spiritually linked at that. I think there is something deeply spiritual that occurs when you get married. Mm-hmm. You're spiritually Sh- linked. Should be. Should be. You're you're correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it yeah. should happen. If you're handling marriage the way God ordained it, yes. yes. There should be a spiritual connection that develops there and that occurs there, a link. You become one in intent, one in purpose, mm-hmm. one in focus. You're doing life together. Your agenda should be lined up in the same. Yep. Right? I believe it's essentially saying the same thing here with Yahweh. The, the reason I bring this up, Yahweh... You would be representative of the Father and the Son, right? Jesus mm-hmm. is the Son of the Father, right? Right. Yahweh is the Father of the Son. But it says that they're one. I don't think it means that they're one person. I think it means that they're one in intent mm-hmm. and purpose. Because repeatedly we have Jesus talking about the Father mm-hmm. externally. Externally. Right? right? Implying that it's a separate person. And again, I know this is a very, very deep topic, and I'm not going to pretend to know. I, to, to, I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers on this. I think right. anybody who pretends to have all the answers on this, you should probably shy away from them because I don't think any of us are going to fully understand the makeup of Yahweh. Right. For God, does that make sense? Yeah, it's. I think it's, it's beyond our our capacity to comprehend fully. Right. Our our linear perspective of a being is would give us limited comprehension of him as a, him as a being. Right. But I think, I think it's helpful to understand that they are two, but one, mm-hmm. two, but one at the same time. Right. You know, I'm not talking some weird pagan philosophy. I'm talking just, you know, they approach us differently, but for the same purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And feel free to disagree with me. That's fine. Like I say, it's, it's debatable, but that's how I would handle the usage of this word akad in the Shema in reference to Yahweh in light of what we know about the son in relation to the father. Kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the connection I want to make there is bringing us forward to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Starting in verse 15, it says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet. This is Moses talking, by the way, sorry. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers. To him you must listen. This is just what you asked of Yahweh your God in Oreb, or at Sinai, on the day of the assembly when saying, I cannot continue to hear the voice of Yahweh my God or see this great fire anymore or I will die. Yahweh said to me, they have done well in what they have spoken. I will raise up a prophet like you for them 
from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all I command him. End quote. That's Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is the prophet like unto Moses. This is, a, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. This is the Son of God, the Son of the Father, Jesus, in his prophesied human incarnation. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're told to listen to him, to shema him, to believe with the intent to what? Obey his commands. To obey. Right? To obey. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier the, in the first segment. What are his commands? What did he physically command us? What did he physically command Moses? Right. I think we have the answer. Yeah. Right? We are explicitly told, because you remember that. I think it's in Exodus, maybe, I don't remember the chapter. Is it? Is it? Is it 18 or 19? They heard the voice and they said, we don't want to hear this anymore. I think it's 19. I think it is. Yeah. Because that, that's the point that uh, that God started speaking them direct to from them directly. Mm-hmm. And the... The mountain was on fire and smote and ash and like. Maybe it was the end big, of 20 because right. he speaks the Ten Commandments out and they hear that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was the end of 20 after he, after he speaks the Ten Commandments and they said, we don't want to hear this anymore. Right. You go up. From now on, you go up and you talk to mm-hmm. him. We don't want to hear it anymore. He's telling them in the future. This is a, a, my, my Carl retranslation of this is Yahweh saying, OK, you don't want to hear me. Fine. In the future after you've messed up royally, I'm going to send my son in human form and he's going to speak to you in a way that is easier for you to digest. Right. Right. In a way that's not as frightening to you because he's going to be like you. He's going to come in your form from among your brothers and he's going to be like you. And then he's going to speak to you face to face. And when I do that for you, when I approach you in a way that is more comfortable for you, you better listen to me. Right. Right. You're not going to put your hand up again, stand at a distance and say, I don't want to hear you. You're going to listen. Right. That's essentially, I think, what he's saying here. Right. Right. And this is, again, this is Jesus. And, and as, a, as a side note, just kind of to, to give an example of why I beat that drum so much on the danger of the church fathers and our obsession with these church fathers and building whole doctrines around the words of the church fathers. This is a quote from Martin Luther. He said this. Christ is no Moses, no lawgiver, no tyrant, but the mediator for sins, the giver of grace and life, end quote. And we were just told from Moses, as given to him from the mouth of Yahweh, Yahweh says his own words, I am going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among your people. Mm-hmm. But then a few centuries later, Martin Luther says, Jesus is no, he's nothing like Moses. He's no lawgiver. Jude says, Jesus led him out of Egypt, which means he was on Sinai giving them the law. But Martin Luther says he's no lawgiver. Mm. He's no Moses. He's right in that he says he's a mediator for sins. That's true. He's right when he says he's a giver of grace and life. That's true. But this is a dangerous half-truth right. that Martin Luther's selling here. And we build whole doctrines in our, in our obsessive following of of church fathers like martin luther we build whole doctrines of lawlessness around quotes like this from him while ignoring the words of yahweh himself who says jesus is a prophet like moses jesus is a lawgiver 
and you are to listen to everything that comes out of his mouth. Right. You're not going to ignore him anymore. The words matter. <laughs> words matter. We got to be aware of this. Right. Right. We need to follow the words of Yahweh, period. I don't care who he disagrees with. I don't care if it's your pastor, Martin Luther, some other scholar that you enjoy reading or watching or listening to. It doesn't matter. You need to defer to Yahweh every single time. I know I beat on that drum a lot, but it matters. Right. And it's kind of why going back to what you talked about in, in a, our what was on your mind with your concern about these Christian universities that are promoting abortion. It's because they're lawless. They don't listen to the mouth of the prophet like unto Moses. They listen to their own heart. Mm-hmm. And they listen to scholars and church fathers that give them an excuse to sin. To do what Jude warned about, of individuals who are weaseling their way into the faith. What did he say? Using the grace of God as an excuse, excuse. to sin. That's what they're doing. That's what this quote from Martin Luther, that's what he's setting a foundation for here. Right. When he says he's no lawgiver, he's implying that you don't have to pay attention to law anymore. And where does that lead? It leads to universities promoting abortion and teaching whole whole new generations of Christians, of young Christians coming up to be even more lawless than the generation before. Mm. And they'll turn around and teach the next generation if we even make it that long teach the next generation to be even more lawless than them. It's what I mean by the death spiral. When I reference the death spiral, the church is what I'm talking about. Every generation gets worse and worse because we ignore the foundation. Mm -hmm. We claim we're seeking after the kingdom of God, but we're ignoring the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We ignore the righteousness of God. And when we ignore the righteousness of God, we draw our own moral lines. And when those moral lines disagree with culture, or our own deceitful heart, we redraw it and we redraw it again. Then we redraw it again. Every time we're uncomfortable, we draw it again. We can't be doing this. Right. Yahweh drew the line. We have no authority whatsoever to redraw it for ourselves. We need to get more serious about it. this is his intent, right? His intent is to be gracious. His intent is to be merciful. His intent is to forgive us for our sins. His intent is to be there to pick us up when we stumble. But His intent is also to be just, to not abandon his justice, and to lead us to repenting from our sin, not to just wallowing in it. So back on topic, Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses in that reference. We're commanded to listen to him and to obey his commands. Commanded to shema him, to hear him with the intent to obey. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 he says, Whoever claims to abide in Jesus must walk just as he walked. I broke that down recently on Facebook, but I don't expect anybody to follow me on Facebook. I might delete my account. So yeah, don't don't go on there. But it's important to break this down into the nuts and bolts, right? right, Of what he's saying here. He says that the him there is obviously Jesus. So that's the important first part, Mm -hmm. right? It's talking about abiding in Jesus, our lawgiver. Then it says to walk just as he walked. It's past tense. So John's, John walked with Jesus. He was his disciple. Right. Okay. He's writing this after cavalry, after the, the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended. And he's saying to walk as he walked, meaning before cavalry. So he's telling us that the way Jesus lived his life, the commandments Jesus showed us how to obey. The, 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 the way he loved, the way he lived, we are to emulate that. 
Right. And then he says, we must do that, or we don't really abide in him. He's implying that if you really abide in Jesus, you would strive to walk exactly as he walked. Now, popular Christian doctrine says that Jesus obeyed the Torah, obeyed the law, obeyed the Sinai covenant while he was alive because he was a Jew and he had to. But And now, after he's crucified and resurrected, we don't have to obey those things anymore because Jesus only walked like that because he, he had to walk like that because he was Jewish. But now he frees us from that and we don't have to walk like that. But John is telling us, and he's not just talking to Jews here, he's talking to all believers. This is the context of, in the context of him talking to all believers in Jesus, he tells us, if you claim to abide in Jesus, you will walk exactly as he walked. Right. Do you see the contradiction here? The, the Christian doctrine about Jesus and his obedience to the law being only a Jew thing completely disagrees with what John's saying. Right. So who should we believe? John. John. Very simple. It is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, like you said, it's counterintuitive to say, you know, Christ died to, 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 for, for our grace. To, to free us from that walk and then to turn around and read that and go, well, actually you should be walking that way. Yeah. Like he wouldn't free you from something and then have somebody and then have the commandment to f- do as he did. Yeah, exactly right. Right. John in one sentence completely shipwrecks whole pages worth of popular mainstream doctrine about our handling of the law. He shipwrecks it right there. Right. And one simple articulate Sentence. One verse. Right. That's all it took him. And this isn't me proof texting. This is in context. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm referencing this in proper context. He's saying that if we claim to abide in Jesus, we'll walk as he walked. He's defining discipleship. You will learn how to walk as he walked as you go. This is what seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness looks like. Mm-hmm. And as we've, as we've found every time we do one of these intent episodes, it all points back to Sinai. Every time. Every time. That's all I had. Do you have any final thoughts before I give our final reference? Yeah. So the the woman that was healed by touching Jesus' garment came to that crowd with the with the intent of that her faith was strong, with the intent of getting to him, touching his cloth, and being healed because she knew that's what would happen. Mm-hmm. And and I do believe that that you're right when when Jesus came to the to that to the ruler of the the synagogue because he believed in Jesus. But I but I can't help but think the reason that Jesus turned to him before he went to his house by himself and said, Believe this is what's gonna happen is because while Jesus while he believed in Jesus he didn't hear Jesus. That's a good thought. And that, to me, that says that Jesus told this, the ruler of the synagogue, believe in me, basically, or what I'm about to go do isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So had the, had the ruler of the synagogue not believed, would the girl have risen? But then, but then that, that idea was kind of shipwrecked when, 
he first showed up there and said, why are you mourning this girl that lives? But to me, that says as he was walking up to the house, like he, that's when he knew the ruler truly believed in him at that point. Right. I and, also, and, and the, and the walk where, so when he first meets him, you believe in me, but you don't hear me. You don't see me. You don't feel me. Right. But when he turned to him and told him to, I feel like that's when Jesus felt because he felt the woman, right? He felt mm-hmm. power from the woman coming out when, when the woman touched him, like he felt his power leaving into her. So would we not believe that at that point he felt the man's faith? And then when he got to the house, then he knew what I'm about to do is going to happen. What, what I come up here to do is going to happen. Right. I also think there's no, because we, we need not forget that the synagogue leader came to Jesus to ask him to heal his daughter. She was still alive. And then it's when the people come and say she's dead now. That's when Jesus turns to the synagogue ruler and says, don't be afraid. Only believe. I think there's an element of comforting there. Because I think I think there's a wide gulf of a difference between believing Jesus can heal someone who's sick and believing that he can actually resurrect them from the dead. Right. That's so it's a good so point. much more extreme. And I think that I think Jesus may have recognized the danger there of the synagogue leader becoming overcome with grief. It's his daughter. Right. It's his 12-year-old little girl. And he, this is how someone chose to come tell him that she's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? She's dead now. Right. And can you imagine what he must have felt in that instant? There was a danger of him being completely broken down, and I think right. Jesus was comforting him. Also, too, that's a good point, too, and also to that point, to have been so close to saving yeah. her. I didn't think about that. Mere, mere blocks away was the healing power of Jesus. And only then did she learn. To, so, so yeah, that adds another layer to the point of, you know, maybe he was starting to break a little bit. Yeah. I was this close. Like, come on, I was this close. What's... If I'd left five minutes. If I, right. You know, or, if, you know. Almost to the point of, if he hadn't stopped to talk to that woman, yeah, he would have been here at my house. Like, see how quickly you can, you can, the uh, the mind, the person's mind can start. Well, if you hadn't done this, then you know what I mean. Like, so many thoughts can destroy you, right? Yeah, and knock you off the wagon. And that's where, like you said, I think Jesus turns to him, sensing that, says, "Don't fear." Yeah, just believe. I got this, man. Right. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your Savior's you. got it. I got you, man. <laughs> that was all I had. That's all you had? Yeah. Well, I'm going to, to close this out, I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And it says this. You are to take care to do the whole law that I am commanding you today, so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers. You are to remember all the way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his laws or not. He afflicted you and let you hunger. Then he fed you manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, in order to make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Neither did your clothing wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Now you know in your heart 
that as a man disciplines his son, so Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you are to keep the laws of Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, and to fear him. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray this has been a blessing to you. If you have any questions or feedback, find us on Facebook at that Philly Faith Fellowship and join the conversation. We're also on other social media platforms. The links will be in the description. If you'd like to help this ministry grow, then we simply ask that you follow or subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice and leave a like or positive review where available. Then share us with your friends. Again, thank you for listening. And as always, and most importantly, keep your feet steady upon the path, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and pursue that Philly faith. Until next time, shalom. God bless. Singing glory, yeah, amen. Singing glory.